We've come today to <clears throat> Revelation chapter 5, and I direct your attention to the text as I read it from the New American Standard Version. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Now we begin, as we began in chapter 4, with the question, Who is sitting on the throne? And your answer is, God the Father. Now, where is the scene? Where's the location of this throne? Anyone? It is in heaven. Same location as chapter 4. And it reminds us of that magnificent heavenly vision, which we described as we examined the details of the fourth chapter, the revelation of the environment of eternal or everlasting glory. As in chapter 4, chapter 5 invites us into the world of heaven with its glorious beauty 
and its effulgent wonder. The one on the throne holds a book. That's the usual translation of the Greek word biblion, and it is possible, but more likely at this period of history, a scroll. A scroll sealed with seven seals. Now, if you prefer the reading book, you can imagine a book with seven successive sections sealed and separated from one another, somewhat like chapters of a book as we know it today. Or you can imagine a scroll rolled up containing seven successive sections sealed away from one another, thus requiring the seals to be broken in order to unravel or unfold the successive sections of the scroll. All sealed seriatim. Either way, the meaning of the seven seals or the so-called mystery of the seven seals will be unpacked when each seal is broken and the closed contents are revealed. But the writer holds us in suspense about when that will occur. We will not have the breaking of the seven seals and the unfolding of the mystery thereof until chapters 6, 7, and 8. And then we will see them enroll, unrolled in succession. We are kept in suspense with the unrolling of the scroll while we address the question that the strong angel expresses in verse 2, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? Notice that this scene has, contains its own drama, its own internal narrative. And so we're moving from the presentation of the scene to the one who is actually expressing the question. And that question is indicative of a potential structuring of this, church, of this chapter as a whole. So before we answer the question of the strong angel, let me suggest a potential structural patterning of this sixth chapter. There is a repetitive phrase that is used several times in this chapter, and you will notice it in verse 1, verse 7, and verse 13. It is the phrase, who sits on the throne or sat on the throne. We have three potential dramatic subunits to the chapter. Verses 1 to 6, where that phrase is used, that, that in, in indicative phrase is used in verse 1. Verses 7 to 12, where that phrase is used in verse 7. And verses 13 to 14, where it occurs for the final time in verse 13. In each of these subunits, 1 to 6, 7 to 12, 13 to 14, notice there's an additional narrative dramatic element. I've already alluded to it. It is speech. The strong angel speaks in verse 2, as does one of the 24 elders in verse 5. So speech, essential to the unit verses 1 to 7. The dramatic power of this revelation is enhanced 
by characters who speak. And they speak about the central character in the drama, namely the one who is worthy as lion and lamb. That is the confession of the four living creatures and all 24 elders in their speech. Notice verses 9 and 10. They are speaking in that second subunit, which covers verses 7 to 12. In verse 11, there is a chorus of living creatures and the 24 elders. The words of a multitude of angels are added to the chorus of the four creatures and the 24 elders. A multitude of angels which no one can number, myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands of them, echoing the praise of the Lamb in his royal power and majesty. Final speech is in verse 13. Actually, there's one more amen in verse 14. But the final element of speech is in verse 13 to 14, which the whole creation joins the chorus. Every created thing repeats the praise of the King of kings and the Lamb of lambs, and that praise to be repeated forever and ever to all eternity. To which the four living creatures make the final speech, as I indicated the Amen in verse 14, to this ascending crescendo of praise and honor to the one on the throne and the, the claim, the slain yet risen Lamb. The drama then of this scene advances the narrative character drama of chapter four. This scene is taking us deeper into the dramatic character of the glorified state of life in the kingdom of heaven in the celestial city. All right, so as we move forward in the unfolding of the revelation of heaven's majesty and wonder, verse two's question, the question about verse two is, who is the strong angel? What do you think, or who do you think the strong angel is? Could be. It's interesting that Gabriel is always identified by his name, where he appears in Scripture. This strong angel is anonymous. Doesn't mean it can't be Gabriel. He reappears in chapter 10. Verse 1 and chapter 18, verse 21. And in all three places, he is not named. Well, is he potentially Christ? It may not be the same one, maybe a different strong angel. Is, is, yes, is, is he, is this, is this the strong angel, uh, where he, wherever he appears, is he the Christ? Well, chapter 10 actually answers that in verse 6. This strong angel swears by him that lives forever. What kind of a being swears by him that lives forever? 
created being. So this strong angel is an angel. The strong angels where they appear in Revelation are creatures. They're not the, they're not God himself, not the Son of God who is God in the flesh. Alright, so, whoever this strong angel is, he is not equal to God, he is a devoted creature. Verse 3 is exclusionary. That is, it tells us after asking the question, who is worthy, worthy, it excludes those who are not worthy. Who could not open the seals? These creatures. The opener must be as God himself, not a created being. Now notice the sequence here. These are creatures in heaven, which would be glorified saints and angels. Creatures on earth, now living humans, or moral creatures, under the earth, all unglorified humans and damned angels. This is a very comprehensive, cosmic, that is, universal catalog of all potential created beings. None of them are capable of breaking the seals and opening the scroll. All of which forces us to pause to reflect that even in this vision, verse 3 is acknowledging the need for someone to act as a go-between. A go-between the heavenly audience and the heavenly person on the throne. To open the seals, a mediator or an intercessor is required. John himself realizes this as he weeps over the total inability of any mere creature to come in between God and the creature, especially the human creature. Who will act in this relation because he is part of both worlds? He is God of the world of divine godness. He has a divine nature. And he also possesses the nature of the human world, a human nature. Just the right mediator between God and man is a person who is God and man, a God-man, a theanthropic person, Jesus Christ, the God-man. Even the 24 elders in this scene acknowledge that they need such a mediator. The Old Testament and New Testament saints represented in the 24 elders, they alike need the Lord Jesus as their go-between. The Old Testament believers needed Christ as their mediator. The New Testament believers need Christ as their mediator. You and I, we acknowledge that clearly, but it's a little fuzzier and vaguer for us, and there are those that don't think that Jesus is the mediator of the Old Testament covenant. But there is no other way 
of approaching God except through his only begotten and eternally beloved Son. And that is true for the Old Testament era as it is for the New Testament era. All the saints from Genesis to Revelation, all the saving grace from Adam to the end of the world comes out of the throne of God through a mediator, comes through a go-between. The creation requires a go-between. Every part of Scripture, also from Genesis to Revelation, also from Adam to the end of the age, has to be read this way, understood this way. Christ Jesus is the sole mediator of grace, the one and only go-between God and man from the seed of the woman to the seed of Abraham to the seed of David to the seed of the outpoured Holy Spirit, the redeemed of every age come to glory through the intercessory mediation of the Son of God. When you read your Old Testament passages, you are reading the revelation of that mediatorial work of the Son of God before his incarnation. It's anticipation, but it's realization in the form which the Old Testament believers could apprehend by grace through faith. Do not read your Old Testament without looking in that direction, without asking yourself the question, how is the Son of God revealed and present here in this narrative, in this sequence, in this poetry, in this language? How is Christ alive and acting by his Spirit even in those Old Testament saints' lives? mediatorial character of Christ. Even as we see this scene, that someone has to take that book out of the hands of one sitting on the throne and then open it and reveal it to those that are in front of that throne, namely the 24 elders and the angels assembled. Mediation essential to revelation, essential to salvation. Now, in the Old Testament, the mediatorial intercession, this go-between role, is symbolized. It's symbolized in a particular institution. What is that institution which particularly symbolized the mediatorial role? The priesthood, correct, whether it's Levitical or other priesthood, priesthood of Melchizedek, for instance. So <clears throat> the priesthood symbolizes this mediation. So there you are seeing a portrait or a picture using actual physical things and, and, and events. You are seeing this mediatorial element which is typifying or typologically referring to the finished work of Christ by way of anticipation. So you see those Old Testament saints received what we received. They received it by proxy. They received it in advance. They received it in advance of his fulfilling that work in his incarnation, but praise God, they believed that it was going to happen. In whatever vague way, it was dark and shadowy, but whatever vague way it came to them, it came to them with truth and reality. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's one simple example. All right, now in verse 5, we know who this is. This is the Lord Jesus, but why is he called the lion from the tribe of Judah? 
based, based on the uh, prophecy of, of Moses, not, not of Moses, uh, Jacob, when he was blessing his sons. What chapter? Minus one, Ben. Good shot. It's chapter 49 of Genesis. It's the benediction of Jacob upon his sons before he dies. And the twelve sons receive a benediction from Jacob. And what he says to Judah is, Judah is a lion or a lion's whelp. A lion, the king of beasts, Jesus Christ, the descendant of Judah, king of kings. Now, that royal title of dignity is duplicated with the phrase, Root of David. This royal title is Christ's own self-designation, Root of David. That's his self-designation in Revelation 22.16. In this very book, the only other place where this phrase occurs is it comes from the lips of the glorified Christ. I am the Root of David, Jesus says in chapter 22, verse 16. Neither messianic titles, Lion of the tribe of Judah, Root of David, and they are similar to other messianic titles in the Old Testament prophets. The Root of Jesse, which is Isaiah's term, Isaiah chapter 1, chapter 11, verses 1 and 10. That chapter which is full of promises to the Gentile nations that the Lord will gather his people from among them and bring them to his glorious resting place. And the prophet Jeremiah refers to the righteous branch of David, the root of Jesse, the branch of David, Jeremiah 23.5 and 33.15. Again, messianic title, a royal Messiah who will be righteous and who will bring righteousness for his people, both actual personal righteousness and uh, salvific, imputed righteousness. The promises of old project an eschatological lion, an eschatological David, an eschatological messianic king, king of an eschatological kingdom of glory, and he is presented in his dramatic majesty and magnificence here by this confession. He is the eschatological overcomer in whom his elect people of the Old Testament and New Testament overcome. Remember, Jesus affirmed this of himself in his earthly ministry when he declared that he had overcome the world, John 16, 33. It's interesting that a good deal of this language which we find here which is poignant in its significance in Revelation, recapitulates or repeats language or vocabulary which is in the Gospel of John, even on the lips of our Savior. The one reinforcing and enlarging or expanding upon the other. All right, we've come to verse 6. I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing. Notice the position of the four living creatures according to this verse. They are with the throne or close to the throne of God. 
You may recall that I suggested that last week when we were examining chapter 4, that this, this picture that we should have is this gory radiating throne, which has no form, it's just light and beauty. But around that throne, there are the four living creatures. They might be on the corners of the throne, but they are anyway surrounding it. They are close to the throne or with the throne itself. And then in front of that, in front of the, of the throne encircled, the encircled throne with the living creatures are the 24 elders arranged in front of the crystal sea. Closest to the throne are these four living creatures. Next, well, actually closer is the one who takes the, the scroll from the, from the hand of the one who sits on the throne, namely the Lord Jesus. He is closer than the four living creatures. But the, with respect to the positioning of the throne, the creatures are attached to it. And as I suggested, they represent the angelic host. But the imagery here in verse 6 changes from the imagery in verse 5. From a lion to a lamb. Why the change? The lion is the roaring king of beasts, a regal symbol. Why this lamb in verse 6? Well, the two animals represent the two aspects of the work of Christ. The lion is regal exaltation. The lamb is lowly humiliation. The exaltation and humiliation, which is together in this one person who is characterized as a lion and a lamb. The majesty of his royal character in tandem with the humility of his lowly character. He stands as a lamb that was slain. Now, why a lamb slain? It causes us to cast our mind back into the Old Testament scriptures to consider certain lambs that were slain. You might first consider the Passover lamb, although there are slain lambs before that Egyptian ceremony. But let's consider the Passover lamb. What is its significance? Its significance is that death passes over the blood-stained house of Israel, and they live. The Revelation 5, 5, Lamb's blood causes death to pass over. And those stained by that precious blood live. The thrust of that Passover lamb is life, not death. It is life for those who belong to the lamb that was slain, whose blood covers their doorposts. It is the issue of life and not death in particular, which is central to that Lamb of God in Exodus 12. 
But then consider the sacrificial lamb. The lamb that was brought to the tabernacle or the temple and offered up as a whole burnt offering. When the person who brings that lamb presents it to the priest, what does he first do? He lays his hand on the lamb's what? Head. And does what as he's laying his hands on the lamb's head? What's he, what, is he saying anything? Is he exercising speech? As he has his hands on the head, is the offerer speaking? If he is speaking, what's he saying? Is he symbolically laying his sins on the lamb? The symbol of the hands mean that he's placing, he's transferring, as was said, transferring his sins to the lamb. But he's speaking. What's he saying? He's saying the sinner's prayer. (laughs) He's confessing his sins. As he lays his hands on the lamb, he confesses his sins. So that the lamb then bears his sins to the altar. Now, this transfer of sin, it's the transfer of the guilt and punishment of the sin of the offerer, his or her sin, to the victim, the lamb itself, transferring or charging or imputing his or her sin to the lamb so that the sinner may leave the tabernacle or temple forgiven, acquitted, justified from their sin. So in the burnt offering, we have the reckoning of sin to an innocent victim, or the imputing of sin to an innocent victim, or the imparting of sin, transferring of sin to an innocent victim And that is the drama of the cultic lamb, the lamb used in the cult, in the worship at the tabernacle or temple. But there's one final lamb to consider, and that's Isaiah's lamb of Isaiah 53. Certainly a favorite passage for meditation before preparing for a communion service, at least one of many, but an Old Testament passage which is apropos and altogether suited for preparing the heart to come to the table of the Lord. Isaiah 53, verse 7. This lamb is led to the slaughter. This lamb is silent in the face of the enmity of its opponents. But that silence speaks volumes. That silence speaks volumes about this suffering lamb bearing the transgressions of his people. He, this glorious lamb, takes the place of sinners and humbly, wonderfully allows the penalty for sin to fall upon him. If life, not death, is prominent in the Passover lamb, 
and justification by imputation is prominent in the tabernacle or temple lamb, then vicarious element is featured in the lamb of Isaiah 53. Now, you may counter that there's vicarious substitution in all three Old Testament lambs. Passover lamb is a substitute. The temple, tabernacle temple lamb is a substitute. And the Isaiah 53 lamb is a substitute. So there's a vicarious element in all three lambs. And you are right. You are right. But more than substitution is life. Life full and free to the slaves of sin. More than substitution is justification before God in his holy tabernacle temple with forgiveness full and free for those conceived and born in iniquity. In other words, there's a richness to this element of substitutionary or vicarious atonement. There's a richness which is not exhausted by simply saying, well, there's a substitutionary element in Egypt, there's a substitutionary element at the tabernacle or temple, the substitutionary element in the prophetic servant of the Lord, Isaiah 53, but there's more than that. There's a rich, there's a rich addition, embellishment of that theme in the, in the offering up of the lambs. So the victim bears a richer relationship to the fullness of Christ's sacrifice. He gives life and not death. He gives justification and not condemnation. He is a vicarious substitute bearing the guilt which we possess. All of that is a richer unpacking of the significance of this lamb who was slain. So the image of this lamb here in Revelation 5 packs in the full drama and narrative of the rich imagery of sacrificial lambs down through redemptive history. And I haven't exhausted it. There is more that could be said about the significance of sacrificial lambs offered in the place of sinners. All right, now let's round off verse 6 with a discussion of these seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits. Here we're rolling sevens. Why seven horns? Well, the horn is a symbol of what? Strength or power. Very good. Seven-fold horns means the fullness of power. Omnipotence. Omnipotence belongs to this lamb. He is all-powerful, fully powerful, perfectly powerful. That's the reason for the seven horns, it's a symbol of his omnipotence. What's seven eyes? The eyes of God? Not yet. Hold the seven spirits off for a moment. Focus on the eyes. All seeing. Give me a synonym. Omniscient. Very good. He's all knowing. Seven eyes, he sees and knows with fullness. The eyes are a symbol of knowledge or understanding. So he is omniscient as he is omnipotent. And the seven spirits, as we learned in the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 5, this is the fullness of the Holy Spirit by which the Lamb knows his elect in all the earth 
and powerfully saves his people by the regenerating strength of the Holy Ghost. His eyes are over all the earth by and through the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which has been poured out upon this age, these last days in this age since Pentecost on. All right, well, we'll pause there. If you have any questions before we go to our break, we'll pause there and come back to look at verses 7 and following. Yes, question? Is Christ's role as the lion and the lamb the same as the lion and the lamb lying down together in peace? Yes, uh, that's, that's an image from Isaiah. You could ta- have the same implication of that imagery, yes. Now the drama, verse 7, the drama of this scene advances. As the lamb and lion of Judah, the root of David and almighty overcomer conqueror, takes the scroll from God the Father in his role as mediator and ruler of the new heaven and earth. The era of the Son of God brings in the era, the new era of fulfillment and finality. All things are new in the arena of the imagery he reveals by opening the scroll and unsealing the seven seals. Verse 8, a heavenly response to the act of the Lamb is that the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before him. What does that phrase, fall down before him, mean? Yes. Anything else? They are worshiping him as verse 14 tells you. In fact, it uses the word worship. What does this mean about the Lamb? Why? Because he's God. He receives what the one on the throne receives. Notice verse 10 of chapter 4. Thus, the four creatures and 24 elders fall down and worship the Father, and the Father is God in chapter 4. The four creatures and 24 elders fall down and worship the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? He is God the Son, so that the Son of God is also God, the deity of the Lamb. The Son of God the Father gives us not two gods, but two distinct persons. One in unity of essence, one in unity of divine substance, two or three in distinct, not separate divine persons. You will notice that verse 6 also draws the Holy Spirit into this unity in Trinity. Trinitarian monotheism, one God, three persons. Two of them specifically designated here as distinct, but not separate with respect to the godness of their divine nature. Now the 24 elders also hold harps. The harp is the instrument of accompaniment in worship in the Old Testament Psalms. Psalm 33, 2, Psalm 150, verse 3. Praise God with a harp and the lyre, the psalmists say. 
Heaven, too, has instrumental accompaniment as it was on earth in the tabernacle or the temple. The use of instruments to accompany praise of God is not unbiblical. It was good enough for heaven's choir of elders. It was good enough for the choir of God's people on earth. There is testimony in the scriptures themselves, even here in the glorious celestial assembly of worship of God by the angels and the elders and four living creatures, that instrumental accompaniment with the harp was appropriate. Now, they also hold golden bowls full of incense. Now, this passage shows us clearly the symbolic meaning of incense in the Old Testament. What is it? Wherever incense is offered, what is it? It's the symbol of the prayers of the saints. Saints or holy ones. The literal translation of the Greek is holy ones. Holy ones both becoming more holy and holy ones both perfect, also perfected in holiness. Saints both on earth and in heaven. Those to be glorified and those actually glorified. So where you see the incense offerings in the Old Testament, you have here an answer to what they, they symbolize, what they indicate. The ascending prayers of the saints. We don't use incense to do that anymore because our prayers ascend from our hearts, our minds, our lips and our voices, that they are ascending into the realm of this scene where they are also expressed symbolically. Now these golden bowl, these, 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 this incense is, is contained in golden bowls. The gold, the golden gleam of those golden bowls indicating the precious, rich, golden environment of the heavenly city as well as the golden character of those prayers as they ascend to heaven, not that they are sinless, but that they are received as uh, as those which are expressive of God's own uh, golden glory. For instance, for, for we always uh, understand our prayers to be offered in the spirit of thy will be done. Yes, go ahead, Ben. Uh, you just mentioned about the harps, that they are musical instruments in heaven, and therefore musical instruments are okay on earth. Well, it is a symbolic mention, but it's a symbolic mention of a more general element, namely instrumental accompaniment. Even as the golden bowls is symbolic of the incense that they contain, namely the golden character or the precious character of the prayers of the saints. So there's, there is a general symbolic, symbolic character which these particular items are expressing. Yes, music, musical accompaniment. That's my opinion. Seems to be a conflict to me because the hearts are actually instruments. 
we don't have bowls, only we have to in our hands. We pray, and the fire is symbolical to me of the singing of the congregation, perhaps. Well, I don't, I don't know how else to, to mean that the, the text itself says what the golden bowls indicate. They, they are the prayers of the saints. It doesn't say anything about the harp, so I go back to the Old Testament to find out what the harp was doing in a worship context. Well, obviously, they're worshiping the lamb. So the psalmists tell me that, and, and actually incorporated musical accompaniment in their praise of God in the Old Testament psalms. Okay. Well, I, as, as you know, as you understand, I do. So we'll, we'll we'll leave it there. We'll agree to disagree. We'll have different emphasis upon it. Yes, Art. So Jim, you mentioned. I mean, you mentioned. You pointed out the text. It does say what the golden bowls are. They are or represent the prayers of the saints. You, you also said it doesn't say explicitly what the harps are. However, they they do sing a new song. Is it a reasonable inference that the harp is accompanying this new song that they're singing? Yeah, it's reasonable to me to, to, to see that. And so therefore, the harp is not merely representative, it's representative. It serves a purpose here of accompanying the song. That's fine. Okay. Uh, yeah, Marge? I'm still... Um, and this may not be what um, is implying, but in my mind... You know, we say harps, that gives justification for musical accompaniment. Bowls, we don't use that. Why is, why is it that some things give justification and other things are not, are put aside because that's from a past time? Well, I think the general implication is to pre- present a, a principle, okay? So, the principle of the harp is musical accompaniment, as the psalm passages which I cited indicate. The uh, purpose of the golden bowls is to indicate the precious character of the prayers of the saints. So the, the incense which is contained in them is, is, is contained in a golden element in order to, 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 to underscore the richness of that in God's sight. All right, well, we're going to have to leave it there. And then... Uh, <coughs> You have to live with the ambiguities or, or, uh, or, or decide that there's a third way or there's something else to, that'll, that'll solve the, the little discussion. But thank you for the discussion. Verse 9, the new song which is being sung. This new song is a song for a new era, a song for the arena or environment of a new era. It is the song for the new heavens and new earth, a heavenly cosmos, a celestial world. It is a song which has been sung from the time the kingdom of heaven was revealed by the king of heaven. It is a song for the era of God the Son in his incarnate history. It is a song about the redemption he brought and continues to bring. It is a song about his being slain by crucifixion and his redemptive purchase unto God of men and women and children from every tribe and tongue and nation and people in this physical world 
so as establish them as priests and king rulers in the spiritual world. They are a kingdom of priests. Notice the text. They are a kingdom of priests unto God in the heavenly territory of the heavenly habitation of God himself. They reign or exercise intercession as heirs and joint heirs, co-heirs of Christ, the King of heaven, of Christ, the great high priest of heaven. This reign and intercession is exercised on earth in this world at the same time as it is exercised in heaven in the world to come. It is a spiritual privilege for a spiritual dimension, both now and not yet. A spiritual privilege for a spiritual dimension, which is now and not yet. In the now dimension, these elect believers rule over sin and death and the curse, even as their Lord rules over sin and death and the curse. They belong to an arena of no more sin now. They belong to an arena of sin forgiven now. They belong to an arena of no more death now. They belong to an arena in which they have been raised up from the dead with Christ Jesus now. They belong to an arena of no more curse now. They are blessed as Christ is blessed with no more curse now. What belongs to their Lord belongs to them now. And that now spiritual dimension of their blessed possession interfaces with the not yet spiritual dimension of their heavenly inheritance and celestial possession. What they possess spiritually now is also possessed spiritually not yet by the saints in glory as Christ himself possesses all these things in glory. So they in Christ possess rule and authority in the spirit on earth as it is possessed in heaven. And they in Christ possess intercession and priestly mediation in the spirit on earth as it is in heaven. They are now a kingdom in the spirit as they are now a kingdom of priests in the spirit, anticipating the perfection of that kingdom and priesthood in heaven now on earth. What a privilege. What a privilege of the grace of union with Christ to be joined in his kingdom and rule in him and with him even now. What a privilege of the grace of union with Christ to be joined in his priesthood and intercede in him and with him even now. Indeed, here is a song to sing in all its newness and fullness and wonder Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, who has made us a kingdom of priests to our God, rulers and intercessors on earth as in heaven. When you are praying for others, you are introducing yourself into the intercession and mediatorial work of Christ, which is in all, all, already going on in heaven. You are joining in that act on his part. You are being brought up and folded into it in your union with Christ. There is a drama to that. There is a vitality to that. There is an energy to that. And so your prayers are enriched by it. And you are drawn into his rulership, into his authority, because you exercise authority over sin in your own life and in your own environment. You exercise authority over 
death because you belong to the resurrected Christ and you, you are promised you shall never die. You understand the point that I'm making here. This business of being made into a kingdom of priests, a kingdom, rulers as priests, intercessors. This is very significant uh, material. This is very interesting interface between the, the heavenly glory of the eschatological kingdom and mediatory and priesthood and the earthly manifestation of it, the spiritual earthly manifestation of it. Now, having said all that, one final note. Keep in mind that this kingdom, in verse 10, of which we are made a part, is the kingdom which Jesus said is not of this world, John 18, 36. It is a spiritual kingdom which manifests itself in the spiritual reality of this world and the world to come. It is not a physical, literal kingdom. It is a spiritual, symbolic kingdom, and that in both the now and the not yet. This is a mistake of the premillennial dispensationalist. This is not physical, literal language. This is spiritual, symbolic language, because it is the language of the era of the new song in the new environment, in the new heavens and new earth, which is heaven itself in its perfection. It therefore has nothing to do with establishing a physical or literal or earthly this kind of kingdom on earth. No. The drama here is centered in heaven, in the spiritual dimension, which is invisible to the eye, but visible to the eye, but, uh, but to the eye of the body, but, uh, but, but invisible to the eye of the body, but visible to the eye of, the, of faith. I don't want you to be tripped up by the phrase, and they shall reign on the earth. You're already reigning on the earth, in the spirit, because you've been joined to Christ. You're reigning over all that which is in opposition to the kingdom. You're not reigning perfectly, but you're reigning in the now dimension of that which will, is already not yet perfectly realized by those that are before the throne of God in heaven. You have a rich interface, you have a rich relationship, see, by virtue of being joined to Christ in his kingship and in his priesthood. There was a comment or somebody wanted to say, Art? So, uh, concerning this post, post-millennial view, you, you mentioned at the start of this lecture that this scene takes place in heaven, just like chapter 4 did. So it all takes place in heaven. So what is it that causes people to interpret this as taking place on earth? Because of the language, they shall reign on the earth, and earth for them means terra firma. That's the premillennial, not the postmillennial. I'm giving I'm giving you an amillennial view of this of this verse. Where does it say on earth? Yes, and they shall. Notice the last phrase, verse ten. They will reign upon the earth. All the premillennial commentators jump on that and say, "Okay, see, we're going to have an earthly millennial kingdom." And I'm, 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 I'm asking you to seriously observe where the scene is in which this promise is uttered. This is a heavenly scene in a perfectly spiritual, celestial environment. So the reigning here must be incorporated into that environment, either as it is in the not yet aspect or in the now aspect. Yes, Randy. 
No, it's symbolic language. Once again, it's language which indicates a new cosmos, a new world. It is the world of God himself. But it is new in the sense that Christ has brought into it the fullness of the new thing that he has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. And not yet, yes. Both, yes. Right. Intercessors, yes. Why do we need them in heaven? Well, you will become part of that work, which is Christ's perfect mediation and intercession. So you're so tightly joined to him that as he mediates, you mediate in and with him. For what? For his glory, for the accomplishment of his will until the second coming uh, for the salvation of the elect. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that exciting news? For the salvation? Isn't this talking about when the world no longer exists? It's talking about what's going on now, okay? Even as we advance to the... the, uh, end of the age and the destruction of, of material reality. So when that happens, then you That's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure I want to venture into that territory. When it does the mediatorial work of Christ cease at this second coming? It's possible to say that because he now exercises final judgment and, 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 the, and the, the work is completely concluded. So in that sense, there would be no need for mediation in terms of the salvation of sinners. But I'm not not prepared, as you can see, to answer that question. My wife has finally asked, asked me a question I can't answer. All right. Well, actually, she works on that often, and I, I, there are other questions I can't answer to, so to be quite honest. All right, now, verse 11, where this new song enters the crescendo phase. Some suggest that verse 11 is an antiphonal chorus. That's incorrect, in my opinion. It's not antiphonal. It's <coughs> expansive. It's, ex, ex, amp, it's an amplification. The voices of the four creatures and 24 elders is swelled by myriads upon myriads of angels. Here is the whole angelic host of heaven joining in the new song to the lamb that was slain while they underscore with seven words his worthiness in glory in verse 12. He is worthy of power for he has died in impotence to vanquish it. He is worthy of riches For he has suffered in poverty to cancel it. He is worthy of wisdom, for he has grown in wisdom as incarnate in order to complete it humanly. He is worthy of might, because he endured weakness in order to overcome it. He is worthy of honor, because he suffered the shame of the cross in order to annul it. 
He is worthy of glory because he participated in the inglorious state of humiliation in order to exalt over it. And he is worthy of blessing because he took on cursing so as to reverse it and overcome it. And all this abounds to his elect saints in the now and the not yet. What is described as being attributed to him is also a benefit to us in him. As you see, we are the beneficiaries of this praise and crescendo singing. Finally, verse 13. Verse 13 13 brings this magnificent new song, advancing by powerful multi-voiced crescendo to its final conclusion, the finale, if you will, to the new song. But whereas the previous voices have been those of the heavenly assembly, four living creatures, 24 elders representing the redeemed saints or kingdom of priests unto the Lord from the Old Testament and New Testament era, myriads and myriads of angels praising the Redeemer Lamb and his finished work. This august heavenly assembly in verse 13 is now joined by every created entity. Notice the language. Every created entity from heaven, earth, and under the earth. Under the earth I take to be the region of hell with the damned angels and the damned souls of humans. Now, this final chorus scene is reminiscent of Philippians 2, 10 to 11, where Paul says that every knee in heaven and earth and hell that is under the earth, every knee of every moral creature shall bow to confess Jesus is Lord. Elect and non-elect will bow to confess. Saved and unsaved will bow to confess. Uncondemned and condemned will bow to confess that the one on the throne and the Lamb are worthy of blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the non-elect, the damned, the unsaved will go into hell with that confession on their lips, still hating it. But they will confess it. They will bow and acknowledge it. Christ will be vindicated before the whole cosmos. God himself in his triune glory will be vindicated before the whole cosmos. Every tongue will confess it. Even those who hate it will confess it before they are dismissed to hell forever. We have moved then in this chapter from the new song as it is rehearsed through the history of redemption to the declaration of the final judgment when all creation will bow the knee in confession, some to their consummate salvation and others to their consummate damnation. From the now to the not yet, to the final eternal state. Amen, say the four creatures, and all the saved bow down to worship God and the Lamb by the Holy Spirit. Amen, amen, and amen. This is glorious language. This is a wonderful experience or demonstration of the experience of those who already participate in it. But keep in mind that we are joint heirs with that participation co-heirs with Christ who participates in it perfectly and gloriously in his own glorification. So let your heart, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in this glorious portrait of what has not, has been revealed for your salvation and for your, uh, hope and, uh, and, and encouragement. Shall we pray? Oh, 
you are worthy, Lamb, and O Lamb, and you are worthy, most blessed Father, as well as the Spirit of Holiness. You three are worthy of all honor and praise and glory, for you have accomplished redemption for us miserable sinners in and through your dear Son, our Lord Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, with your fatherly love and care. Receive, O Lord, our humble praise and prayer and our plea as we too intercede for the salvation of sinners from every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven, that the fullness of your elect may be brought in. And so we may also pray, come, Lord Jesus, come speedily. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.